Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Britflix.com podcast. It's the Britflix.com podcast. Welcome to the Britflix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Rob Sprackling, screenwriter yeah. known for Mike Bassett, England manager, No Moon Juliet. Uh, hello, Rob. Hello, mate. And how are you today? I'm feeling better than I was yesterday. Right then, well look, um, from a writing point of view, what I always like to ask people is, not necessarily starting with the writing, but what, what or who represents a tipping point for you in your life that wanted you to make movies? You know, was you seduced by film as a kid or was writing something you decided late in life? Uh, it, as a kid, obviously I love movies. You know, Where Eagles Dare... God, look at that. You can't beat that, even to this day. I forced my, my 12-year-old son into having to light Where Eagles Dare, and he has to keep telling me it's his favourite film, even though uh, I'm, I reckon he probably wasn't that sure. But, uh, but yes, it, uh, I, I love film, obviously, as most kids did um, growing up, and uh, uh, loved going to cinema and kind of always preferred it over TV, I guess, uh, even though there's some wonderful TV stuff. Film was always a thing I really loved. But uh, uh, when I got... Uh, you know, when I left school, I went off to drama college to become an actor. But I was a very, very bad actor. Uh, very, very good over-actor, but uh, uh, not terribly good at just plain acting. But I wanted, really, to be in film. I wasn't terribly interested in theatre, which uh, I find a bit boring, to be honest. Uh, uh, and film was the thing I really loved. Um, uh, and then when I, uh, when I was at college, I started writing for the first time. A mate of mine, uh, my, one of my best mates in college, wrote a play and put it on. And I felt very jealous, so I copied him, and I put I wrote one, and I put it on as well. And uh, then he directed, and I starred in it. And then we ended up becoming writing partners. Uh, uh, it's a guy called John Smith, who's uh, my writing partner to this day. So, so, so that's kind of where the writing started. But then I drifted away from it. I, I came up to London. I became a, a comedian. I was a stand-up for a while. Uh, I did TV presenting for a while, and uh, and actually, when doing TV presenting, I, I was a I was a good stand-up. I was a really crap TV presenter, and uh, it was doing that that actually the bug for writing came back to me. And I wanted, I was frustrated having to do pieces to camera about something I wasn't interested in, which had already been pre-scripted by some other producer or, or researcher for me, and it was you know it was depressing. So I just wanted to do my own stuff, and writing an entire movie was a thing I really want to do. So that's when we launched into that, and we went and wrote a film, and it was crap, and we put it in the bin, but the next thing we wrote, we sold. So, so that's how it started. Well, that's a 
a very good segue to my next question. So, in terms of sort of writing process, yeah. when when you're starting a spec screenplay, yeah, what's your process of taking idea to finished screenplay? It, it's it's a good question. It's changed and evolved over the years. Um, uh, <clears throat> it used to be because I write with a, a partner a lot of the time, not all the time, but we write together a lot. It used to be that we would. Uh, we would have an original concept. Normally, we'd have quite a high concept ideas. We write a lot of um, uh, kind of family kids movie type things, like obviously Nomeo. Mm. <clears throat> but we sold quite a lot of other films to the US down the years, which haven't been made, but we've sold them and uh, they should have been made because they were great. Um, and things like uh, The Queen's Corgi, about little pompous corgi who ends up in Batsy Dog's home. He was the Queen's favourite corgi, and he gets his ass kicked, and he works out to be a decent corgi. So we, we, we've sold quite a lot of these things down the years. Anyway, the way we tend to go is we come up with a, a good, strong concept idea, which one of us bounces off the other one. We normally evolve it so it's got a good kind of joke to it. Uh, we had come up with this idea before Madagascar about a bunch of animals that break out of a zoo called Blackwater Zoo, which is like mm. the great escape. For, for a zoo, for animals, which thought, oh, that's a great way of clashing ideas in the same way as Romeo and Juliet with gnomes is a stupid way of clashing ideas. So we come up with a good, strong concept in the first place. And then we normally just riff on that idea, come up with characters, don't get too formal about it, just piss about with it and, and make each other laugh and come up with what we call routines, which is just a scene which has got its own integral joke to it, which has got a beginning, a middle and end and, a, and something funny and stupid that happens in that scene totally isolated from plot and anything else but just in the in the domain in the in the in the area so it's about creating that world so you create a world by building out with lots of silly routines which just make you laugh which are free floating and don't join on to any story in particular and then after a while we get a bit bored of that and then we go well hang on how are we going to start to structure this story then we get into a kind of structure phase and you go okay well look the act one we kick off here that's where the break into act two comes Act two, break into act three, and there we are, and there's our payoff at the end. So we get a very, very rough structure, just with kind of the tent poles of the act breaks and the beginning and the ends. And uh, and we go, okay, into that, that's what the story is. First act, we meet this guy, this happens. Second act, he goes through this journey. Third act, he learns that, and then he's got to resolve it by the end. We fit, and then we find homes for those routines. We fill it out, and then where there's not routines we've written, we develop them to fit in, and, and slowly it kind of evolves like that. So, so that's how we, we started off doing it. These days, it's not quite as intensive as that. We kind of we, we got a bit more of a shorthand, but that's really kind of the, the, the basic premise of where we began with this. And how, how, how does um, that idea of sort of developing those kind of sort of, I guess, sealed routines, I suppose, when you start doing them, they, like you say, beginning, middle and end. How, how, does, how does that infelt, infelt, inform, sorry, inform the understanding of, uh, of the characters you're creating? Or do you, do you lose characters during that process? Do you, do you agree, disagree? Quite the opposite. Actually, normally the routines come from character. You know, most as people will always say, and I've never really understood it before, but good, good comedy comes from character. Um, but so basically, if you're developing uh, a, a character, you know, a funny character, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, we had uh, in this Blackwater Zoo thing we wrote, which was the animals in the zoo, there was, uh, there was an otter who ran the film club. The zoo was like a kind of, you know, kind of uh, backstage. It was like a kind of um, butlins, you know. They're all kind of in there, putting on their show. They go and do the little bit, and then they'd all relax and go to the canteen, and the animals all chat away, and it'd all be just like they're putting on a show for the public. 
and uh, and they'd have their own little entertainment. They have film night, and there was an otter who ran the film night. And so you go an otter, okay? He's, he, what films he's going to want to show? And things like some like it otter. And he's just going to want to show otter-based films, really, and everyone's just really pissed off that we can't can't we have a giraffe-based film or something? No, it's not. So you just work out like what are otter-based jokes, and so and then you spring from the otter-based jokes into routines, and then how does everyone react to the otter thing, and who's particularly pissed off, and the fat three fat hippo Welsh hippos are getting in everyone's way, and no one can see the screen, and, and they've sat on the stick insect, and any, any I know, you just develop it out from there, so you have an idea, he's not who runs the film club, and then they're all in the cinema, so what happens in that scene, and it generates a routine, but that routine is kind of suggested, or, or springboards off the idea of inventing characters in the first place. And as, as, as writing partners then, do you, do you decide at the start of it that one of you's got veto, or do you fight cat and dog over certain things? How how does it you know when you when you've when you've got to that point where you've beaten it out and you've written that first that first draft is written, yeah, you're developing a script then as opposed to like the fun bit, which is kind of coming up with auto film ideas and all kinds of things yeah. like that. How do you then evolve a screenplay together? It's, it's, again, it's changed a lot down the years. It used to be that we'd spend about three months in a room uh, uh, just developing, uh, uh, writing uh, notes. We got about 100 pages of notes. Having been on a computer for three months, and, and you know, no, two months probably, uh, just generating the stuff. And then you take all this material, <clears throat> and normally back in the old days, I would go on the computer, and then I would basically you know, put, put all this nonsense into a full screenplay. So I'd type it out. Obviously, you invent some new stuff as you're going through it. But broadly speaking, you try and keep as much as you can to the notes that have kind of evolved and fashioned over that two-month period and transpose it up onto the screen and, and get it, uh, you know, onto the computer. And so I would tend to do that while my mate uh, went to the pub. And then, uh, then I would uh, stop doing that, send it to him, and then I would go to the pub and he would then go over it a second time and kind of do his take on the top of that. And then we'd both get together and uh, out of the pub or in the pub and then flesh through what we'd done as a kind of third draft together. So, uh, so you, kind of, you can't just all sit on each other's shoulders all the time because you start annoying each other. And you can't keep going, no, shouldn't that be is instead of it? Or should it maybe of? You know, you've just got to let one person get on and write the bloody thing. And then, the, you know, you can rewrite a thing a million times if you want it. And you've, and you've found that, I mean, because the reason I ask is because at the last sort of 12 months I've started working with a writing partner. Yeah. And it is, it is a fun, it is a, it, it, it's often kind of like a fun game of like when you get the next pass to do. Yeah. It's kind of like how ruthless or not can I be yeah. with changes I'm about to make and how personal yeah. or not yeah. will somebody take it. And I'm the same, you know, with the conversations we have back coming away is like, Words like oh, "I'm relieved," "I'm relieved you like what I've done there," because I was worried you might think I was taking that scene of yours and getting rid of it or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, no, there are definitely moments like that, and these days things have moved on where where we it, it's not just me going to do it. These days we both kind of like on one script, maybe John does the first pass on another script, I do the first pass. So it, it, it's evolved and changed. So it, we, it's you know John does those first pass as much as I do now, um, and but that whole thing about you know, uh, each other's egos and changing things that somebody else has written. We don't normally have an argument about it, but if there's something that I've written that John then goes and changes, but I really liked it, I'll just sneak it back in when I do it, and then he'll just sneak it back out again when he does not for us, and then I'll just sneak it back in. And it's just a war of attrition until eventually one of us gives up and either allows it to be in or out and vice versa. So we kind of, we, rather than have the argument, we'll do it, we'll do it surreptitiously. 
Writers, the best passive aggressives. <laughs> Very good at that. <laughs> well, look, given it's a World Cup, it'd be remiss not to talk about your creation, Mike Bassett. Yeah. Which is obviously a brilliant satire of how simple-minded football can be, as well as a good out-and-out comedy. Thank you. Um, how? I mean, you've talked a lot about generally about your process and stuff, but taking Mike Bassett specifically, yeah. Um, how did you go about getting that balance between that that, like I say, the satire of football, but also getting laughs that are you know that, that anyone can find funny, kind of thing. Well, it's uh, uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I you know I, I think football is funny anyway, and and it's you know a pretty common currency. And what we're really dealing with in that story was about an incompetent. Well, not not an incompetent bloke, but a bloke who's kind of middle order. He, he he's you know kind of uh, he's of a certain level, but he's not really international standard. The usual thing that happens with our boys, whether it be Hodgson or McLaren or Graham Taylor, or whatever Keegan, you get a guy who's not he's not really top end, and you put him in a top end job and expect him to perform. And so that could be true of football. It could be true of of any form of management or any or any walk of life. So. You've got some kind of general truth about a man struggling with uh, the pressures which he's not able to to meet, uh, which is universal. And then obviously you've got the, a, a very stupid world in football, which is, you know, I adore football. I love the England team. Um, but, you know, it, it is ridiculous. And, and, and the press are, are crazy. The FA are ridiculous. The players are pretty pretty funny. And, and you know, the wags and the supporters and, the, you know, the whole realm, the whole TV media coverage of the whole thing. The whole thing is ridiculous, really, and let alone FIFA, who are, who are the most ridiculous of all. So, so you know, there's a huge world to, to sat, satire and parody there, uh, which is, is, is pretty easy, really. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, now, Nomi on Juliet was, is a very different piece of work because, obviously, you're adapting Shakespeare. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It didn't really come about that way. I mean, obviously, even though... We started off with the idea of doing Romeo and Juliet with Gnome, so that was an adaptation of Shakespeare. We really wanted to find, you know, you always knew you had the Shakespeare story there, so you could always kind of rely on that and go back to and use that plot there. But really, we wanted to, who are these gnomes and what is this world? That's the thing we're inventing. So so the first creative pass we did on it was less concerned with trying to honour Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and more to do with creating a world in these gardens, which is fun and, and original, has got life and great characters and is rich on, on its own terms without any, you know, Shakespeare, which we can then fall back on for a, a good story later on. So we kind of started by generating up the characters, really, and, and working on what that world is that we were inventing before, obviously, then leaning more heavily in the story on, on the Shakespeare. OK. Now, when I look at... Uh, this is just, uh, just looking at, say, IMDb... And the writing credits for Romeo and Juliet—they're quite extensive. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, thought I'd you, find you, your you, name on there as well at one point, Stuart. I was, was going to say, I think, I think, did I walk past did the you office? Past, did you at thought... some stage? <laughs> but obviously, obviously, the cl- the clear thing is, obviously, you and John original screenplay. Yeah. And yeah. you and John story. Yeah. But obviously, William Shakespeare's in there as well. <laughs> yeah, well, we, he came in for a couple of weeks, but it didn't really work out. So, uh, so how, just just to kind of, what what's the is there a politics to this? Or oh, is... okay, mate. Listen, it's it, this is a Hollywood movie. You know, we sold this originally to Disney. Yeah, uh, via Rocket Pictures, who's uh, you know uh, Elton John and David Furnish's company, 
Uh, so, uh, but they were they had they already had a deal in place with Disney because he did Lion King with them, uh, and and Disney were that we sold it to Disney, not to Rocket. So, uh, so you're dealing with you know Disney executives. I've I've sold quite a lot of animation movies down the years to Hollywood studios, mm. and uh, and and it is always a huge political game. That writers rarely stay. You know, you don't really stay with one writer. You might come back to the same, same writers later on, but mm. by and large, both writers get shifted off. Other writers get bought in, and then they get shifted off. And other writers get bought in, and then they get shifted off. And other writers get and it goes on like this. And that's that's the that's the Hollywood process. You don't you get it a lot less. You're doing in a small-scale British film, obviously, where you writers tend to maintain ownership. But but in a big Hollywood film like that, I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I was quite surprised when I saw the uh, the, the list there. Yeah, well, and, and also in animation, because there, there's a thing with the WGA, the Writers um, Union out in America, um, which doesn't apply to animation. So on most film scripts, what will happen is it'll have it'll be analysed by a, spe- a specialist in um, credit control, and he'll say, right, okay, these people did genuinely write extra bits on this, and these people, they, they didn't have so much in it. Whereas with animation, it, it doesn't apply. So you can basically have loads of people who worked on it. And if, if you actually look at most Hollywood movies, they probably had that many people writing on all of them. Every single Hollywood movie, probably more. But they won't all get accreditation. Because it's animation, then you, you're allowed to do that. Having done so many uh, animation Films, yeah. How, how does because obviously with animation you're not you're not as restricted by any mad thoughts that a producer might go that's too expensive that's you know because obviously yeah. if you commit to an animation then you do an animation aren't you yeah um, so what 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 would be the different challenges in terms of writing animation versus live action from 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 your point of view. Well, I mean, one of the reasons we're attracted to animation not is partly because you know they're mainly done for family, kids things, and 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 the whole notion of animation and doing stuff for kids is you, kids have got, I think, better sense of humour than most adults. You know, they're they're kind of they're they're silly and they're funny and they just like bizarre, ridiculous ideas and they and they go with it. So so that all applies to animation, really. You 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 know, you're not. Restricted so much as you say by oh you can't have that scene because we couldn't afford to do it, but also it kind of requires you to to be more free form and have a wilder imagination and do sillier stuff. So so it kind of forces you by by dint of you know the style that it's in to go down that direction. So so I think it, I, personally I think you know looking at all the animation canon of the last 15 years, I think it's been not only the best period for animation in its history with all the Toy Stories and, you know, I love Shrek 1 and Shrek 4, I think it's brilliant. Um, and, you know, so many great movies. Like How to Train Your Dragon's a great movie. And there's, there's loads of fantastic animation movies, which I think is absolutely will go down in the history of the kind of golden period of animation. Uh, but I don't just think it's been the best movie for animation. I think they've been the best movies of all. There's, they've been mm. better than every adult movie the, in the last 15 years. Toy Story 3 has got more emotion in it than any drama or, or adult movie I've seen in 15 years. It's, it's absolutely heart-rending, and it's really funny, and it's brilliant characters, and it's got great action sequences. So it's basically every single film in one, uh, and it's really hard to do that. And, uh, and, and so I think animation at the moment is absolutely outstanding, and, 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 and I, I love working in it because it can achieve all those things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but the, the other one I always think of is, um, is Up. It always seems like that's an adult film, 
It is an adult film. It's an adult film. I don't know how they got... I can't imagine how they got that away in a meeting. You know, I've had enough pitch meetings in my life pitching ideas to people and then like, oh, yeah, well, I just don't know if that will go for kids or something like that. There's always, Someone will find a problem. That is such a risky movie to go and make about a little old Bufton and his, and his little fan mate. Yeah, yeah. Off somewhere, and then the story goes off in a totally different way. Hang on, where are we going off with it? We're chasing around after some strange creature up on a... What's all this about? I mean, trying to get that away in a pitch meeting, I don't know how they did it, but obviously they did it because... It was all in house. That it was Pixar, and the guys trusted them, I guess. And I mean, it's, I'm, 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 I would have been right to assume that really that the the industry for animation is coming out of America. There is, or is there a a cottage industry or a burgeoning industry coming out of Europe or the UK even? Well, at the moment, I'm writing for Ardman, who for me are you know up there with Pixar as, as the best of the best. They're 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 brilliant. Now I think they're some they're a company we should all be really proud of. You know they've won loads of Oscars and they've done brilliant movies. I think Curse of the Were Rabbit is up there with with any animation movie. Uh, it's it's wonderful. And uh, uh, so so uh, yeah, I uh, we're working with them on a stupid project which we pitched to them. Well, I've worked with them in the past on other movies, and uh, we're doing a thing called Village Idiot about a bloke who is obviously a local village idiot and it's about his son really he's got the most embarrassing dad in the world what would it be like to have a dad who's a village idiot and so uh so that's that's a movie we're writing with them right now we just started actually uh, on the screenplay having been developing it with them for the last uh eight months or so now with with comedy and the rewriting process how do you and john keep the funny in without losing it because of over-familiarity. I mean, do you have third parties that you kind of use to help keep the funny in, as it were? Or do you, do you early doors, you go, right, let's remember this bit. This bit's funny. Don't, yeah, we're we doing the rewriting. Yeah, the alarm that goes off every 25 <laughs> minutes and it, uh, to remind us, this is, not, be funny at this point. Okay. Then at that point we're then mildly funny, and then we move on to uh, no, that, that doesn't happen. Um, we we uh, it's it's it, you know I, I guess what we're we're lazy enough to not get too kind of bogged down with it all, so that when we actually gird our loins and get into it and start working, we're actually we've developed enough of an appetite to try and be funny. So uh, I think um, I think yeah, we we've never really struggled. I think to to make each other laugh. You know, we've been great mates for. For, for 25 years, so uh, uh, or longer, so 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 you know, it's it's it, it's never been a problem making each other laugh, and so I guess because we've got that, it, it's always been relatively easy. I guess you do go through times where you're not feeling very funny, but they only last you know a few months, and then you know you get bored of not being funny, and then you start being funny again. I guess. I was thinking more of the fact that you know you you get the funny down on the page, yeah, and then you're you're working a script for eight to twelve months. And you know we're, we're all be, we're all told to be ruthless with that what we're doing and the phrase "kill your babies" and things. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's more about writing out the funny. You know, killing. You know, actually killing your babies accidentally. I mean, how do you? Oh, you know, I see what you mean. Yeah. So you once you've written something, and and then you're fashioning it and making it more smooth and trying yeah, to get. You're, you're thinking you're being clever, but actually yeah, you're yeah. losing. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good question. Uh, that that can happen, and uh, and and there are times when you know we look back over things we've written and we thought, what the that was a brilliant routine. Why do we cut that out? <laughs> uh, and 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 often I'll watch a film, uh, and and it'll just have a a segue in it, which is just like that makes no sense. That doesn't 
fit with any plotting or character. They just chuck that in. But it's the funniest thing in the whole film, and nobody cares. And so I think you can, especially with comedy writing, you can believe the books too much. You know, you can sort of want to be too earnest and, and stay all completely on plot and thing. Where sometimes in a movie, it doesn't really matter. You know, I look at things like Austin Powers and they just don't give a shit. You know, they're just idiot crap, you know. And, uh, and they just chuck it in. Oh, this obviously made them laugh on the day and they go off on some tangent and they chuck it in. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But where it does work, it's normally the funniest thing in it. And so that whole thing of like, oh no, everything's got to earn its place and you've got to kill your babies. I'm not sure that's 100% true. I think, actually, there's times in a script where you can just chuck something in just for the sake of it being ridiculously funny. I, I buy into that. I th well, I think as well, there's, there's all, all the best films often have those sort of jarring tonal shifts because somebody yeah. decided, you know what, I'm going to do this now. Yeah. Well, if you watch The Life of Brian, you know, The Life of Brian... Yeah, okay, what's the story, really? The story is a bloke's mistaken for son of God, and then uh, he's trying to get off with a girl, so he joins some shoddy terrorist group, and then he ends up getting, getting killed uh, on the cross, and the, uh, they all renege on him and bugger off. So it, the, the story's a bit like, well, okay, it's, it's all right, it's a bit meandering, but it's kind of obviously a parody on, on, on what the Jesus. But into that, you've got a whole thing about haggling over beards, and and the stoning, stoning, stoning. What's that got to do with any of this story? You know, um, uh, and 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 we found this spoon. I don't know. There's a million just stupid routines in that film which just make you laugh out loud, which really were not necessary. M money for an ex leper. You know, it, it's it's really <laughs> not connected with telling this story. It's just silly, and it, it's brilliantly funny. Now you, you've you've had experience of writing for both TV and film. Yeah. What what would you say is the difference? between the demands of a film producer and a TV producer on the writer? Uh, in TV, writer's got a lot more clout um, than in film. Uh, obviously, it depends on what film. If you're working, I'm working on, on my Bassett 2 at the moment with Steve Barron, and we've got a very you know great relationship with Steve. He's the producer and director, and, uh, and we work with him on a number of things, and so there's a lot of trust there. And, and so, you know, we can say things to Steve like, yeah, no, we disagree, we think this has got to be in, and he'll listen to us and, and, and we'll, we'll, you know, and, and take that on board. Whereas it, it, often in film, the writer is hired and fired, certainly if it's a Hollywood movie, you're hired and fired, uh, and it doesn't matter if you generated the idea, wrote the screenplay or anything, you know, you, you, you easily shift it on. Um, in TV... The writer really is king, you know. The TV, you know, and 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 it's shown, I think, in recent all these box set series where it's the writers who are in charge. The writers have been given the money to go and hire the cast and hire the producers and hire the directors, and the writers are running the shows. Uh, and the quality is there for all to see, um, you know. And 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 I hate it because I love film rather than box sets, uh, but. They are doing better stuff than, than coming out in a lot of films at the moment. So, so, so in, in TV, the writer gets a lot more say, a lot more clout. They're really the person in charge. Uh, in film, the writer's down there beneath producer, director, actors. You know, he's, he's, he's not in charge. So uh, what, what would be um, the next thing that we're likely to see with your, with your name attached to it? Well, there's a few things. As I said, we're doing this uh, Mike Bassett Interim Manager, which is a sequel to Mike Bassett Manager, which finds uh, Mike Bassett uh, at the start in charge of the Iraq women's team, <laughs> having fallen down the <laughs> post of managerial uh, appointments. And so, uh, so yes, he, he's looking after them. 
Uh, and but they're all wearing. That's a, that's, sorry, sorry, Rob. That's <laughs> that's a good eye concept to start with as a football yeah, manager. There we are. There we are. That's what it is. So, um, so yeah, as I said, they're, they're all wearing burkas. He doesn't know that he, he ends up, he makes some terrible faux pas. We've got an Argo-style run to the airport, <coughs> and um, and then he's back in England. But he ends up uh, being back as a kind of, uh, the, uh, the the guy in charge of England at the time is a German with an entire German backroom staff, and basically that's the only hope we have of ever winning a World Cup is just to get all the Germans in. So uh, uh, he used to be Bassett's assistant manager when Bassett was briefly manager of FC Smooth Boys of Baden-Baden. Uh, <laughs> so he, he takes him back on as his Gefata, which is uh, helpmate in German. So he's a kind of like a Stuart Pearce-style assistant manager to Fabio Capello. But then, obviously, it all goes pear-shaped. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but... Uh, sounds a treat. By hook or by crook, he ends up as interim manager. So, uh, so, so it's, it's, it's basically uh, revisiting our, our deal from Bassett, Ricky... Tomlinson, who is, for me, one of the best comic and tragic actors in Britain, who's hugely undervalued, I think he's wonderful, um, is in it. And, uh, and, and yeah, and so we go again. Um, and hopefully we're shooting that. We've got to get the last little bit of money, but I hope to shoot that in September this year. If, if we don't get this last little bit, we'll have to wait till spring, but hopefully um, September. OK, fingers crossed. Well, hopefully we can... Uh... Have you back on talking in more detail about that then? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, mate. Yeah, definitely give me a call. I've also got another thing. I got a kids' book I wrote called "Born Again Ben." It's the first book I wrote. Okay. Uh, uh, about a kid who's a horrible shit who um, who uh, who goes around upsetting everyone and ends up getting at the end of chapter one getting run over and killed stone dead, and then being reincarnated as a cockroach and he's got to work his way back up the food chain. Uh, if he wants to be a human again, but you only get to go up if you're a, a good person. So he's a, has to be a decent cockroach, and he, and he comes back as a frog, and he comes back in the lives of all the people he pissed off, uh, in, as as the you know various different animals as he goes up the food chain, and uh, and, and so uh, that's been picked up by a by a Hollywood producer, a guy called Rob Rob Minkoff, who directed uh, Lion King's picked that up with a guy called Peter Safran, and we're setting out with a studio right now. So hopefully that'll be made as a feature as well. That sounds like a fairly uh... Buddhist story, doesn't it? it? It is a fairly Buddhist story and a fairly Hindu one, but uh, That's yeah, a Hindu it's as well, yeah. a very good one, if you don't mind me saying. Nice one, but, nice one. But, I was going to say that finally, then, if um, everyone that comes on the show, I get them to recommend me a British movie that yeah. you think's underrated and deserves okay. more kudos. Okay, I've got... Okay, um, uh, I, there's a movie, actually, a mate of mine produced it, but that's not why I'm suggesting it. Uh, um, but uh, uh, called Frequently Asked Questions About Time Travel. Um, brilliant film, by the way. It's a brilliant film. And that just got, you know, 12 people watched that movie in the cinema, and it was really funny. Mm. Uh, great concept, brilliantly delivered, really well acted and directed. Uh, and I just love that film. It's great. I, 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 and we actually uh, came into a little bit of work right on the end of it, but it never ended up in it. But, uh, was, you know, but, but that aside, it was, it was a really... Great film, I thought, and I think that deserved a lot more. Um, and another film, which I don't know, maybe it has had a bit of um, um, coverage, but but I, I just love it, and I think it's one of the best films ever made. Is Hope and Glory? Um, do you do you have, do you know that movie? I remember it. Yeah, go on, yeah. tell me more. Yeah, in Bannon, um, in Second World War, small boy. Yeah, the small uh, boy on the cover, I can picture. Yeah. yeah, school bombed out, and so it's it's basically his view of the Second World War. It's a small boy's view of the Second World War. It's a beautiful film, 
uh, where, you know, the Second World War is just a great result where you get lots of bomb sites, you can go around, you know, attacking friends with trying to sh- sh- attack German parachutists who've come down by mistake. And, you know, and, and, and it's basically all seen, a war seen through a small boy's point of view. And, uh, and it's beautiful. And he, in the middle, he goes off down the Thames with uh, stay with his grandfather, who's a maniac. And it's just a lovely, lovely story about a boy growing up in the war. Uh, and, and I adore that film. No, that sounds uh, that sounds like a good two good recommend two solid recommendations. I must admit the the frequently asked time travel one. It's yeah. one I've I've given to friends to watch, and they've all gone. Where was this? Where did this film come from? Exactly, and I think they, I remember at the time when it's come out. That you know, obviously I'd, I'd seen it before it come out, mm-hmm. uh, and I was like, this is the boys. This is a hit. This is just brilliant. It's fantastic. You got a runway hit here. It's it's, it's outstanding. And, there, and I was like, when's it coming out? Oh, yeah, we've got a distribution date. It's coming out in, you know, two months' time. And then two months passes. I haven't seen a lot, of, lot about this. What's going on? Yeah, they just bumped it back. It'll be out in, a, in another three months' time. And then we just, and what happened there? Yes, definitely. It's coming out, you know, four months from now. And then it just kept getting pushed back. And then they did a crappy little release and put it out in, you know, 10 cinemas or something. And, and it never got a chance. And if someone had got behind that movie and put it out big time, then I think it would have been a huge hit. Indeed, indeed. Well, look. Rob, thank you very much for your time, and we hope to have you on the Britflix podcast to talk about some of your projects that you've got coming up. Thank you, mate. Nice, nice speech, you, Stuart. It's the Britflix.com podcast. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.